Is it true that the calm always comes before the storm? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcasts about national security, including terrorism. You know from all of the podcasts I've done over the past five years or so that I, I worked in intelligence for 32 years. I worked in counterterrorism for 15. Uh, I've written six books on terrorism, uh, mostly the Islamist extremist variety, which unfortunately has not gone away, despite what people are saying about the rise of the far right, which, yes, is a very, very worrisome trend. My, my hometown, London, Ontario, just had what appears to be, appears, I say, because it hasn't been de- demonstrated definitively, possibly a right-wing attack against the Muslim family on Sunday night. But, you know, a lot of people have kind of said, you know, Al-Qaeda, kind of yesterday's boys. Islamic State, well, the caliphate's been uh, taken over, therefore they're not the threat that they once were. We can move on kind of thing. Not surprisingly, I, I've been pushing back, and, and I came across a really fascinating article uh, on a website called Engelsberg Ideas a few weeks ago by my guest, whose name is Suzanne Rain, and the, the, the article was entitled, What Should We Do When Terrorists Go Quiet? So I am absolutely thrilled to to, to welcome to the podcast Suzanne Rain. She is a former um, member of the Foreign Commonwealth Office, which is the FCO in the United Kingdom, worked for 24 years on foreign policy and national security. Uh, she worked, she was posted in Poland, Iraq, and Pakistan, and she specialized in counterterrorism and was also a senior member of the UK Government Assessment Community. So Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. No, it's it's good to be with you, Phil. So when you wrote this article that I read, and I'm going to put a link to it in the podcast. What did you mean when you said that terrorist groups go quiet? What what what, what does that term mean for you? Uh, it's, it's a good question, Phil, because it was very difficult for me thinking of a a title that I it, I find it easier to ask questions in in titles of articles, and it was quite difficult to think exactly how to write it. But but what I meant is um, essentially when it appears that the terrorist group has has stopped conducting activity. And um, it particularly relates to to the phase we're in now, where having lived through five years of of caliphate, and particularly in in Europe, those those were intense years with high tempo of attacks in Europe. Mm. And then it, it seems to have quietened down. And from, you know, from objectively on the streets of of European cities, it is a lot quieter than it was. So, so I was just, you know, it was just a phrase used to sort of, to sort of point people to this this moment where, where the terrorists appear not to be active, and of course, and we're going to talk it in in a lot more detail, I'm sure, about about what that means. But, but that moment, I suppose, the the critical point that I was trying to make is that just because things seem quieter, doesn't mean that things are quieter, and you know, you've worked in, in counterterrorism for, for a long time. The, the sort of the big illusion, in a way, or the the thing that sort of the public and possibly politicians haven't entirely grasped is that the most dangerous moment for all of us is before the attack, not after the attack. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel like so. So actually, the most dangerous moment could be now, but we don't it's, know it. Um, the so-called that, calm before the storm. Exactly, and 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 what I was trying to highlight is is the real difficulty, 
given all the other pressures that um, you know that the politicians are under, is is knowing when the most dangerous moment is because mm-hmm. it will not be the noisy moment. It will be the moment where you where you can't see what they're doing. So so kind of that's what I meant by go quiet in. In a, in a much more complicated way of explaining it. And of course, if you work for MI5 or CSIS or law enforcement, you you want to be active during the quiet time because you want to be able to pick up on the signals because there's, you know, there's nothing worse than saying, oh, things were quiet. We shifted resources because we didn't feel anything was going on. We were under pressure by politicians. And I, I don't know if it's happening in, in the United Kingdom, Suzanne. Certainly here in Canada, all that anybody wants to talk about is the far right, far right, far right. Nobody seems to care or are concerned that there may be, in fact, an Islamist extremist presence here right now. And I think the attack in London, Ontario, is just going to exacerbate that dialogue. I find that, you know, the, the subtitle of your article is interesting. I'm not sure if you chose it, but, you know, Western governments must wake up to the uncomfortable reality that when terrorists go quiet, they might be planning something big. So, Suzanne, if I could, you know, follow up on this, this notion of going quiet, um, do you think the fact that things are quiet, and as you pointed, they're, they're not zero. We have had attacks in France. We've had attacks in Germany in recent years. Do you think that this quiet phase, if we can call it that, is um, something that the groups themselves, is it a strategy on their part, or is it a response to the fact that they've, the security services, law enforcement have interdicted um, cells? I've, I, I see reporting in the news all the time about people being arrested, planning acts of terrorism. Is it both? Is it neither? Or are there other factors I'm not considering here? Uh, I think it's both. Um, so the subtitle, the, the critical word in the subtitle is they might be planning something big. So right. I'm not saying if you can't see any terrorism, you should automatically assume that they're planning something big. What I'm saying is if you can't see any terrorism, you have to maintain the capability so that you're able to spot if they are planning something big because you can't assume that they're not and um and the pattern in the article i I described sort of two um two cycles really where western governments and, and the terrorists were were out of sync and the first is um the planning throughout the 90s which culminated in 9 11 of course. And and at the time, mostly during the 90s, most of the attention was actually still focused on um, Palestinian rejectionist terrorism and on Hezbollah because they right. were the ones who'd conducted the attacks in the 70s and 80s. So, so, so in a way, there was a sort of lag before people really cottoned on. And I, I mean, I know clearly towards in the late 90s that there was no question about the threat from al-Qaeda, but, but it, it, it took a bit of a, a lag before before it was well it took 9-11 before people realized how serious it was and that that is because it was an unimaginable event but then this second um the second cycle which which was particularly the sort of um the reduction certainly in 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 perceived terms the reduction in the threat from islamist terrorism specifically to western countries that that happened roughly between 2008 to to the time of um the declaration of the caliphate um sort of well the growth and declaration so 2013 to 2014 and that was a period when essentially it, it maps completely onto drawdown from iraq 
um, mm-hmm. and to the the sort of the violence that came after the the failure of of the Arab Spring and and the war in Syria. So, so essentially, that was the time when um, when the 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 things that were keeping pressure on the Islamist groups relaxed in lots of different ways and and drawdown from Iraq was one element of that and they received a whole load of new impetus and the problem for western governments was that it, it was it was in a sense it was a natural consequence of the drawdown so 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 the US troops leave Iraq um you had then a series of jailbreaks which is a um which has consistently been an indicator of reorganizing growth of of terrorist groups they're kind of getting the band back together and every time that happened um it was noted but there was no there was no compelling argument that said right well we need to go back we need to reintervene because we can see that they're regrouping so clearly we i mean you can't make a political case that you should send all the troops back to Iraq on on the basis of that. So so that's the problem is that is that the cycles are just I think I think it is a natural consequence uh, that when the suppression is at its most powerful the terrorist group will be at its lowest ebb and as soon as the pressure comes off then the terrorist group regroups. Um the critical thing is and I think this is clearly demonstrable by by historical fact is that they they don't change their mind and and start doing something else instead mm-hmm. what they they are suppressed and they they struggle through the suppression phase and and in in the cases of both al qaeda and daesh that's been um extreme amount of physical suppression, so military engagement, um, bombing campaigns, um, particularly against Daesh in Syria, uh, where they were physically forced out of Raqqa and, and the lower Euphrates Valley. So, so that's, that's a complete um, physical suppression, but, but it doesn't change their minds. And, um, you know, doesn't kill everybody and any plan which says the only way we're going to deal with this is by killing everybody is is not a good plan anyway right. um so, so so i suppose what i'm saying is that there comes inevitably there comes a point where where the pressure is removed or re, or relaxed and they then regroup and you should just expect that and build that into the planning cycle of of the counterterrorism or more broadly of this, of your foreign policy there's so many good points you've raised here, Suzanne. I, the one I want to pick up on before I go on the next question, which is a brilliant segue. So thank you for setting up uh, this notion that terrorists, they don't change their minds just because they're under pressure. They don't have their, pardon the phrase, come to Jesus moment and decide they're not going to be terrorists anymore. They either hunker down or they fight back or they regroup, whatever. So you talk about the fact that, you know, in the aftermath of uh, of Iraq, of course, we had the military drawdown in the, in, the, in the late 2000s, as you said, which led to the rise of Islamic State. Uh, we have a very analogous situation happening right now in Afghanistan. Of course, U.S. President Joe Biden has pledged that he will remove uh, U.S. troops by July the 4th, by the, uh, you know, the American Independence Day. And I follow Afghan news on a daily basis. I don't know if you do, but there are attacks daily by the Taliban. There are attacks weekly by the Islamic State affiliate, the Islamic State in Khorasan. 
Uh, the Taliban have famous, famously told the world, uh, you have the watches, we have the time, meaning that, you know, we're not going away. So I, I don't want to, you to get your crystal ball out because I know you don't have one, Suzanne, but are we inevitably falling into the same trap? We're going to, I mean, I understand why the Americans are pulling out. Getting, they've been there for 20 years. They've lost 2,400 lives, I believe, trillions of dollars spent. It's Afghanistan's in no better shape now than it was 20 years ago when 9-11 happened. So, I mean, are, are we going to see, you know, the, you know, this, this history going to repeat itself? Are we, are we going to get out of Afghanistan? The Taliban will, will most likely take over the government. Uh, already reports that the Taliban is still in contact with Al-Qaeda. Do we go back to where we were before? And does it prove that this 20-year engagement in Afghanistan was all for naught? Um, well, Phil, it's it's all very depressing, I think. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but it, but, it, but it is. And I mean, one of the reasons, again, I, I was careful in the first paragraph of my article to say, you know, the, deba- the fact that the debate is still going on about about what would have been the right thing to do, about what is the right thing to do now, just indicates very clearly that um, that, that whatever has been done, and, and God knows it's, it's a lot of, of blood and treasure that's been spent in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. it just hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to sit here and say, I've got, I've got the brilliant answer when lots of great minds have, have dedicated many years of their lives to working on this but i suppose you know it's it's an obvious point that history shows <laughs> history shows how difficult afghanistan is and yes. um i mean we're speaking this morning where there's just been um a terrible deadly attack on um the halo trust officers in afghanistan yes. which killed yes. 10 of their people and yes. that's just another example of how mindless and um, and kind of anti-Afghan the, the violence is. You know, these were Afghans killing Afghans who yes. were trying to help Afghans. Um, so, so it's it, it's in a very bad place at the moment. Um, if that's what's happening, and it is, and you know, and, and women and children are being killed because yes. they're women and children. So, yes. um, so let's be pessimistic about that. I think. <laughs> The thing that I'm most concerned about, in a way, is where the role of the Islamic State sits mm-hmm. in all of this. And I, be, I mean, it's it's been there for a number of years now, and it's been it's doing what it's done everywhere else, which is essentially be more violent and mindless than than the Taliban or Al Qaeda ever were, and. The, the hallmarks of their, their attacks, which is um, which are more indiscriminate in that, or not more indiscriminate, but they have a wider range of targets. They have a, a wider range of, of groups of people who they consider essentially to be inimical to the, the kind of state that they're trying to create, and they they fuel this sectarian um, division. All of those are really really bad developments. And for me, I worry that what you're going to end up with is a peace process with only half of the problem. With only half, you're only talking to half of the problem. So you might be able to bring the Taliban on board, but the Taliban are now the 
the grisly old men and there's the new disruptors on the block who are not at all involved in this peace process and and, and you wouldn't want them to be because how you know you don't want so so i think that's how can i how can i see a good side of it? I mean, that is something that the taliban themselves are going to have to work out what they're going to do about mm-hmm. it and and you know i suppose i don't know a best case scenario is that the afghan government and the taliban together are able to eliminate this even more extreme version of Islamist terrorism that that has now taken root there. I mean, and it's taken root there in a way that is more resilient, I think, than people expected, because there has mm-hmm. been a consistent campaign, um, again, military campaign to disrupt uh, IS Khorasan province, as they're called. And despite that they're continuing to do the attacks so it you know it's it's a really it's going to be a really tough thing to break that down i think you know you're not alone suzanne in being pessimistic about afghanistan i think we all you know we all feel obviously for the for the afghan people i've got friends who are afghan canadians who've come here and and you know the country has been in a state of turmoil for, for for decades now, and there is no there's no shine on the horizon there. I think for that, and, and I'm and I'm glad you did bring up ISK. It gets very little mention, I find, in most Western media. You only tend to hear about the Taliban, who of course are the largest actors, but the ISK, as you said, has been around for quite some time, and they're quite resilient. And they, like other Islamic State uh, so-called provinces, they are particularly heinous and brutal. You see what they're doing in Mozambique. You see what they're doing in in Eastern um, Eastern in the DRC. Uh, in Congo, beheading people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let me let me ask you perhaps an unfair question, Suzanne. Uh, uh, you know, it strikes me that we here in the West are, are generally very short-sighted. Uh, we don't look, tend to look down the road. We tend to look at sort of, you know, what's happening in the next economic quarter. Uh, we want to move on to something new. We don't have the patience kind of thing. Do you think that if this is truly a characteristic of Western society, do you think our inability to hold on to hold our attention on to something for long periods of time, like Islamist extremism, which has been around for the better part of, well, at least 40 or 50 years. Are we getting bored of it? And this, therefore, uh, you know, governments consist of human beings and human beings have their, their foibles and their, and, their, and their failings. Is this inability to have the long-term view, is this having an effect and our ability to maintain our attention on Islamist extremism because we've gone on to something new? Or, or am, I, am I making too much of this? Yeah, no, I think we do get we get bored of things very quickly, especially if they're essentially relentless bad news. And um, for me, the, the problem with the way that Western governments deal with Islamist terrorism is that it becomes something that is a security. It's a security led problem, not a diplomacy led problem. And right. to I mean this. I'm not saying what you think I might be going on to say, which is essentially that we need to look at the entirety of the issue and we need to put lots of effort into development because I I don't think necessarily that... um, I I don't think the one cures the other. I I think development is in its own right a good thing. It, It hasn't necessarily demonstrated over the years that if you put a lot of effort into developing a place, you reduce the... The Islamist belief. Um, I think there are a whole load of other things that are very complicated that um, 
that shape Islamist movements. Um, it is the case in some instances, like Mozambique, that that a narrative of grievance, of neglect, um, of profiteering, enable an Islamist movement to recruit people from within a community. So it is clearly the case that um, you can reduce a community's vulnerability to radicalization by dealing with local grievances and by local I mean you know within a nation or within a within a region um but but the the big frustration that I have had for at least the last 20 years is that is that separation between security and diplomacy so we're now you know we're now in this sort of phase where everybody's talking about US China rivalry or mm-hmm. you know Russia being a big disruptor in different ways and the point i was making is that in in every way that you measure strategic impact the islamist terrorists have had greater strategic impact on on our societies and on our spending including ridiculous I mean, um, impossible military budgets than than any state power, and so to to write one off as being a security matter and the other as being serious diplomacy mm-hmm. is is a false categorization. They're all serious diplomacy, and I think that there's a weakness in the the collective approach of Western countries towards this is is that the diplomats have been have been kind of in the they've been in the back seat but they've put themselves in the back seat so so they should have been out there for the last 20 years shaping diplomatic solutions at the same time as the security campaign was being waged and just i mean this is an insane but obvious example is is the Syrian war where it is if i were to try and if i were to write down the the narrative of the diplomatic efforts to find a solution to the Syrian war over the last however many now years it is called Phil how many is it eight nine years oh, exactly um, yeah. the most coherent narrative would be an Islamist extremist narrative because you couldn't explain Western behavior Western Western decision-making Western interventions in any other way. Um, and that, of course, is is terrible. <laughs> so so you, you kind of do think, you know, this is, there is, there's a continuous need for diplomatic efforts to take this as a serious problem across the world and to work with other countries uh, to, to essentially to solve conflicts. And once a conflict has been brought to a point where where it's no longer actively hostile to put real effort into what happens next rather than just going off and doing something else instead and i and i appreciate that that's so much easier to say than to do and i appreciate the amount of for example the the amount of effort that the un and france in particular are putting in into peacekeeping missions in the sahel region and um how many people have lost their lives trying to do that and how much work there is still to do. So I'm not not saying this thinking this is easy, but I suppose I'm saying it thinking, you know, it needs to continue to be a diplomatic priority so that it's not just left to 
you know, the, the military and the security agencies mm-hmm. and and development to try and work it out between them. But it, but it strikes me, Suzanne, that, you know, the, the perennial problem is resources, right? I mean, it, whether it's the FCO or Global Affairs Canada here in Canada or the State Department of the United States or whatever, you've got finite resources and you have infinite problems. The, the, the question that becomes, how do you decide which resources to devote to which problem or which ones get the priority? I mean, you obviously saw that when you were at the FCO for as long as you were. This has to be a very, very difficult decision-making process when, when you sit around the table and say, okay, here are the things that worry me. Here are the things that keep me up at night. Who can I put where and do I have enough resources to do that? And so, you know, can you walk us through sort of how those decisions are made without breaching any kind of, you know, privacy or secrecy? Well, I can't, I can't walk you through how they're all made because um, it's, <laughs> I would be lying if I said I knew, but I, you're absolutely right, Phil. They are impossible um resource decisions and i think what i'm arguing for in my article is is recognizing that um it's it's inevitable that the attention will shift if you if attention will shift to the priority that is is shouting the loudest and that's currently not islamist terrorism because they're not conducting the attacks on home soil that that oh, it's by which i mean you know the capital cities of the Western government, um, and while they're not doing that, then then you're not going to be able to. You, you know, it's very difficult to make a compelling case. You should put resource into that. I I utterly accept that. My argument is that what you should nonetheless maintain is your ability to be alert, constantly mm-hmm. alert and vigilant, and to to look really open-eyed at the the signs that they are regrouping in certain places and make sure that you're using that expertise that you have amassed over now a, a long time of doing this to to really say we've noticed essentially a step change in activity and all our experience shows that when you see a step change in activity the following things are likely to happen next. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about what we need to do that. And I suppose at that point, I, I accept the point about there's a limited amount of, of diplomacy you can do, but there are nonetheless vehicles still there, you know, for doing international counterterrorism. There are vehicles for, you know, we all have embassies or high commissions in all of the countries where there is a problem mm-hmm. and we have um networks amongst ourselves that that look at how you, you can deal with these sorts of things so i suppose what i'm saying is that those those resources already allocated um should be empowered to do as much as they possibly can on these it does sound, i'm sorry that does sound woolly um on these issues <laughs> so essentially not to stop um, not to stop and to remain vigilant are, are at the very least the things that we should continue to do because self-evidently, although the problem may have localised, that doesn't mean it's not going to come back um, towards us in, in the Western countries again. I suppose <laughs> remain vigilant is is the buzzword here. Uh, you know, Suzanne, I, I think we could, we could go on and on and on for hours at this. I, I don't want I don't want to keep you. You're, you're a very busy woman. Um, I must say this is 
perhaps one of the most pessimistic <laughs> I've ever done. But but in all honesty, it's also one of the more realist more realist ones. I think you've raised some really good points about what's out there and that uh, you know keeping an eye on things is uh, is the only strategy because if you don't keep an eye on it and something happens, then you get, you, you you are, are called on the carpet for not keeping an eye on things and, you, and you're, you're asked why weren't you there why didn't you prevent this why didn't you know about this so I, I think you've really walked us through a really interesting aspect uh, of you know international diplomacy I, I like how you brought in international partners of course you know you know the United Kingdom and Canada are part of the five eyes community we're part of you know the G7 we're part of a, a variety of of networks and organizations that can work together like-minded countries that can work together to try and not just keep an eye on things but but make things better prevent bad things from happening so from the bottom of my heart thank you so so much for joining me on the podcast today you're welcome phil i think if i may just very quickly finish the the word that i don't want to be so pessimistic um (laughs) that the word i think that i think we're all we all need to aim for is is coexistence Mm. um because not everybody in the world is going to think the same way about things. And if you are, um, you know, an Islamist fundamentalist, you just have a different belief system. And the question is how we can find a way to coexist without constantly feeling the need to attack each other. I think that would be the first step. Um, and it's it's difficult but we have, I think we have to accept that we're not going to change it. We're not going to make everybody think the way we think. But if we can start at least to, to reduce the amount of violence, that, that I think is really important. Uh, very well said, my friend. And, and in light of the, uh, the heinous attack in my hometown of London on the weekend where a, a 20-year-old man appears to have targeted a family because they are Muslim, I couldn't agree with you more. So again, Suzanne, thank you very, very much for sharing some really profound thoughts on on terrorism, on diplomacy, and what we should do about it. You're welcome. Thank you, Phil. So that was my conversation with, with Suzanne Rain from the United Kingdom. What do you think? Do you think that uh, the the terrorism issue is going away, not going away? What we should do about it? I, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content, you want to hear more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com, hit the subscribe button. You get a free daily digest of podcasts, blogs, etc. to your inbox every morning, as well as a link to my newest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism Canada from Confederation to the Present. Always love to hear your feedback. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe.